Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper, current high school coach, teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for Detroit Free Press. Omar, you didn't bring anything out for episode 50. We're live on YouTube and you got nothing. It's still just Detroit Free Press, no Michigan State love, nothing. Yeah, you know what? People are watching this live. You know, we gotta, I gotta make sure I get through this, man. I can't switch it up too much and lose my, my train of thought. We have 50 episodes of routine, so maybe episode 51 we can look at, look at shaking the formula up. I want to give the people what they're used to, what they want. I don't want to throw them off real loop in our first live episode. I can't do that. Nah, I got you. I got you. I realized um, whenever I was doing breakdown videos over at DBB, YouTube, all that stuff, I always said, let's take a look at, and that's how I started every video. And I didn't even know I did it until someone was like, yep, the patented, let's take a look at. So (laughs) I think it's one of those things. People just get used to what you say and your cadence and all of that. And of course, because he's going to play a major role in this episode is Wes Davenport, our producer, always joining us, whether you see him or hear him or not. He's always here with us, taking notes in the background, doing big things. And if you are watching the first ever live recording, thank you for joining us on this fine Sunday afternoon. Ask us questions about what we're discussing. Anything you have about the Pistons, any questions for Amari and I in general. If you're a regular listener, you know we love to talk about chips on sandwiches and you know our life and everything. It's snowing in Kansas right now. I don't know what the weather's like in Michigan, um, but this is your chance to get raw reaction and opinion, Amari, because, you know, one thing both of us, we we prepare, right? So usually we have outlines, we have mailbags, all of that stuff ahead of time. And today's episode, Wes is going to drop a, you know, a question into the feed and we're just going to have to answer live and in the moment. Yeah, this feels like more of a radio vibe than a podcast vibe. And there's a lot of overlap. Uh, like we have to edit a few things out of our usual podcast. If there's one too many ums or uhs or I just need a minute to gather my thoughts. But for the most part, we usually just let it go. And, you know, I think we're pretty clean edits. So unless my fire alarm goes off or something, I can't imagine we're going to have too many things we're going to have to do too differently this time. So it should be a fun one. And I see the questions are already rolling in. We will get to these guys. We're going to give you a chance to, we're going to get the episode going and then we will get to those questions. And if there's something we're talking about last night's game that we're recording this Sunday morning, of course, this is going to go out on podcast on Tuesday. So um, for those, we got to let know what's going on here. We're recording this Sunday afternoon. So it'll be before the game on Monday. The Rockets game happened last night, Omari. That game did happen. And I I guess we got to start there. Here's the thing for me, Omari. It was demoralizing for me as a fan. I know this is different for you because you just cover the team. You're not a fan of the team. And so you don't ride these waves like a lot of the fans do, myself included. But like I was demoralized by that mostly because I thought it was a win the Pistons needed, that the win they could get. And the Rockets were so depleted and it started off so promising. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat that game. Like it was a complete flop for the Pistons. Uh, you, the Rockets have no Jalen Green. They have no Shingoon. Uh, I mean, the Pistons are banged up too, right? Like you don't have Cade Cunningham. So you're talking about two bad teams, two worst teams in the NBA, both entering this game banged up. But even so, on paper, I think Pistons probably still have a little bit of an, an edge and it came off a really, uh, you know, I don't know if there's an encouraging one in a season like this where you know, you're probably going to be a bottom three team regardless, but at least a good win over the Brooklyn Nets where that's a game that still is not a guarantee. They came off a five-game uh, winning streak or a five-game road trip, I'm sorry. And, you know, of course, they're the Nets stop Kyrie. But to beat them, I think, showed that this team is capable of playing better than they have. And then to come home 
and lose a game like that against the Rockets two days later is uh, it's not good. You know, it's just not not good. No matter how you cut it, uh, there's no good way to explain what happened at the end there when you're giving up those offensive rebounds and a lot of those 50-50 plays you need, just effort plays, were not there. So, yeah, of course, I think a lot of people have been kind of frustrated in general, and that loss highlighted a lot of reasons why people are frustrated is because it's one thing to lose. It's another thing to lose to a team in the same boat as you, and they just out-hustle and out-play you. Yeah, that's what was frustrating, right? Like the Rockets weren't even that good. I I don't know what the total field goal attempts ended up, Amari, but I know at halftime, the Pistons had 10 turnovers, had given up 10 offensive rebounds. And even though they're shooting 50% from the field, 46% from three and like 90% from the free throw line, the Rockets had got 13 more field goal attempts because of those things. And the thing, the Pistons were even active defensively. You know, Hami came in and was doing what Hami does. And we'll talk about him. Maybe we'll get some questions about him. I think where I was excited, Amari, is I thought this was a chance for them and I know the tank race like I get it and and we'll talk plenty about the draft and maybe we'll get some questions about that as well but it was like maybe you beat the Rockets on Saturday you have the Lucas Mavericks on Monday the Wizards actually have been playing well but then you had the Hornets coming up after that I was just like here's a chance to get some like real momentum you know what I'm saying going into um, the trade deadline and I can't help but wonder if maybe this team is such in flux right now like you know, it's been a tough season. You don't know what's going to happen at the deadline. They're, you know, do they just want to get through all of this? You know, Bagley, we don't know when he's coming back. Cade's not coming back. It just seems like there's a really weird vibe as as they go up and down this roller coaster. Yeah, I think what you fear uh, with a team that's losing a lot and you're in the midst of this rebuild and maybe you're not always sure when things are going to turn around is complacency. Uh, you get afraid that guys will just get used to being bad and you begin to see the upside of what you're doing every night. You know, when, you know, we talk about it, like the seems at a time, this event is most nice and whatnot, but you still have games like last night where that should not be the result, right? Like, you have to put your foot down somewhere and say, okay, like maybe we're at a disadvantage, but you still have that 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 pride, that, you know, cliche chip on your shoulder, uh, whatever you want to call it, that allows you to rise up to the moment. And they just didn't do that last night. I mean, they had... They played well enough to win that game, I think, several times over. And two days later, they showed that they could do it. So I think it's just, I think with this team, it's different because sometimes you have teams that are just outright bad, right? Like Houston might just be outright bad. Uh, this Pistons team, you have Bogey, you have Alec Burks, uh, you have the trio of 2020 picks. Uh, you would hope to see enough to where you could avoid doing that. And I think it's just that game to game inconsistency where. Thursday, it looks like they care. Saturday, it looks like they're ready to go home where, you know, you probably just want to see them perk up a little bit more and that's not happening. So I think it's just the complacency aspect of it that, you know, you kind of run the risk of entering into when you have a rebuild. And that doesn't doom the rebuild, but as far as just getting through this season, that it doesn't, it doesn't bode well to see a team move backwards or even just tread water when they should be moving forward in some level. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, it just seems like they're trying to get through. Like, they know this season's almost, you know, a, a waste. and Not not a waste, but in terms of, like, actually winning games, it's like our face of the franchise isn't going to play till next season. So we just got to get through these 30 games. And like you said, you don't want to see that. You want to continue to see improvement. And so I do want to ask about the new starting lineup because, you know, it 
Coach Casey implemented against the Nets and it worked. So Killian Hayes went to the bench. Um, I don't believe Stu was starting. He just was returning from injury. But the new starting lineup was Jay Nivey, Alec Burks, Bay Boyan, and then Jalen Duren has obviously stayed. I saw that you did an article about this, Amari. I don't know if it was you were able to talk to Coach Casey about why the, the lineup changed or if it was just your thoughts around what you had heard and seen. But what are your thoughts about the lineup change that we've seen um, now in two games? games one really beneficial and then you know last night obviously not so much yeah I think the bottom line for the Pistons is that they were just not competing uh, you come off of a really bad loss against Milwaukee and yes it's a healthy Milwaukee team so uh you know for me that loss wasn't necessarily like you know five alarm fire like what's going on like Milwaukee should have won that game pretty comfortably but to just come out completely dead in the first five minutes is what you don't want to see and then you come out in Paris like you have you know, this trip and, um, you know, overall it's a good trip, but you still have the game and you come out flat against the Chicago Bulls and then you have that loss against the Knicks and the Knicks, are, they just thoroughly owned the Pistons this year. <laughs> and I think you're just seeing uh, just stretches for this team. Like you had that loss against Philly a couple of weeks ago where they just came out completely flat, lost by 31. Uh, you're seeing that you're not getting 48 minutes of consistent play and I think you kind of look at that and you say, how do we how do we fix this? Right. How do we just get consistent play all the way throughout the game? We can't have these five, eight minute lows where we're just thoroughly non-competitive and then we're having to make up for it and dig ourselves out of a hole later. I think that's what they're trying to solve. And they kind of looked at it and they're like, Alec Burks has been as consistent as they come coming off the bench all season. It's a veteran. We know he can perform under pressure. Maybe it's time to just start him and see what happens. Right. And then from there, it's well maybe we should move one of our young bar handlers, whether it's Ivy or Killian Hayes to the bench, uh, because there don't need two healthy bar handlers on the roster. Curry is hurt, Kay is hurt. Uh, you know, we need somebody who can capably create plays for 48 minutes. So you move one of them to the bench and it ends up being Killian, you know, and, and maybe it should have been Ivy. Like, I think you can make arguments either way, but, you know, I think the idea behind that was just trying to get consistent point guard play on the floor and not wearing out your two young guards in the first six minutes of the game and all one's playing 12, 14 minutes straight. And it's just easier to have fresh legs come in maybe through the first quarter. So I think a lot of it is just just the, the, the competition aspect, right? Like let's get a full game of effort. And then when you make that decision, there's other judgment calls you have to make as far as who sits, you know, who starts. And Alec Burks has not started. And I think just have that veteran and that scoring in the starting lineup is something that appealed to the coaching staff a lot. Do you think that that somehow made the second unit, like obviously it made it worse in terms of scoring, but I, I've seen a lot of like, and I know you got um, a little bit into on, on this on Twitter with Killian Hayes. So now Killian Hayes is running the second unit, but Burks isn't there to play alongside of him. So like the trade-off, it almost seems like they're prioritizing Ivy and Durin and then in the second unit, you don't have that scoring punch and those things. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because my other thing with that is, no, Killian doesn't have a lob threat in the second unit right now while Bar Marvin Bagley the third still out, but he still has plenty of shooting. Like, I know Hami's out there, but he also had Kevin Knox and Isaiah Livers playing with him and Isaiah Stewart, who I, I do want to talk about Isaiah Stewart at some point as well, because I think we've seen why he needed to make this transition to playing the four. But do you think that this quote-unquote hinders Killian Hayes' development or progression or what we've seen from him? Because because I don't. like I, He's getting the ball in his hands. He's getting to run his own unit. To me, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, and I kind of, you know, I kind of tried to explain 
uh, you know, the intent of what the way Casey meant when he said Killian's Killian with like a super second unit. It sounds like an emotion or you just don't see him as a starting caliber point guard. But I think from the standpoint of putting players in positions to succeed, you can't necessarily do that for both Killian and Jaden at the same time because they started together and like you're getting smacked, right? So what good does it do if you're starting both of them and like Corey's hurt, Kay's hurt. Uh, you're not getting that 48 minutes. So one of them has to come off the bench. I think that's where it starts, right? It's not necessarily we want to not reward one of our young guards. It's just we need one to come off the bench because they're the only two point guards. And Ivy really is still growing into that role, right? So, um, you know, I don't think it was necessarily done. Like, I think some people see, like, maybe balance or negative intent behind that moving Killian to the bench. And I don't think it's that. I think I agree with you. It's just Killian is the best playmaker on the roster. Ivy is... A capable scorer, he could he could make those passes, but you probably need more spacing around him for him to maximize that. And Killian can move the ball regardless of who he's on the floor with. We've seen that over three years that if the scoring is always there for Killian, he's going to compete on defense and he can still pass and move the ball. And he's still doing that off the bench now. And he still scored 16 on Thursday. So I think it's just an awareness of, you know, Killian is more suited for this role. You know, we don't want Jaden Ivey to come in with the second unit and he's not, he doesn't have spacing, he doesn't have this and that. And he already has some playmaking things he has to iron out. So why make it harder for him when we know Killian can probably handle it? And I think you look at Killian's numbers since he entered the starting lineup. They're good, but he's still shooting around 42% overall, 25% for three in that span. So he's not setting the world on fire. He's just been a good, a good guard. Like he's been a pretty good starting guard over that stretch. You know, he's not like, a player who's necessarily going to single-handedly win you games. So I don't think it's inherently, I don't think the logic is inherently flawed to bring him off the bench, given that in the long run, he probably settles him as a bench guard for this team. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. If he was averaging like 25 and 10, or he's like hitting all these clutch shots every night, this and that, okay, maybe he deserves to start. Like maybe there's no reason why you shouldn't bring him off the bench. And even the way he's played, you can still argue that. But to me, he is suited for, you know, bench row the way he's, he's been playing. I don't think that's a knock on him. I don't think that's a deep prioritization of his development, I think it's just a reflection of the fact that they need a point guard to come off the bench and he's probably better suited to do it than Jaden Ivey is. And I think that's all it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in the same... And I think that's where the disconnect is. I think Killian has given us a lot of hope and, and rightfully so. He's played in so much better over these 30, 40 games that we've seen after the slow start and then his previous two seasons. But I think both of us still feel like he settles in as a second unit point guard. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I don't... I think you need a really good backup point guard, someone that can come in and guard the three-point shooting, especially the catch-and-shoot has gotten good so he can play in the playoffs. Like, he may be one of those guys where I think Hamadou Diallo is a regular season valuable player and why I want the Pistons to bring him back next season. Killian may be one of those guys that's better in the playoffs and maybe get more minutes in the playoffs when the game slows down, defense matters more, et cetera. And, and we're going to get to all of your questions, especially when we come back for segment two. So if I know some of you got jumped by the one we got from Jacob, but his applies right here in the moment. He said, Bryce, as a coach yourself, do you believe in maximizing one lineup at the expense of another lineup like this? Or would you rather have more balanced productions from starters to bench? I'll be honest. And listen, obviously, I've never coached at the NBA level. The closest I got was a very low um, major division one or sorry, low division one, not even mid major. I would put my best five man lineup to start games. Like that's where I would start with this is who are my best five players and how can I maximize my starting lineup? And if coach Casey and the staff think that that's Ivy Burks, Bay Boyan and Duran, then that's what I would do. I actually disagree with that Amari. And this will answer another question that somebody asked. I want to see Stu and Duran back together. And 
I know that's at the expense of the second unit and you want to have a five man there. Like I get it. Like play homie at the five. I don't care, but I would like to see that. Like my, my starting lineup right now is if this is what they're going to do with Killian, I would then start Ivy Burks, Boyan, Stu, and Duran. And so to answer Jacob's question, I do think I would prioritize my starting lineup and then figure it out with my second unit. But again, like I, I also don't think you have to play 10 guys. Like I'm not a too deep guy in the NBA. Like I think you can play eight, nine guys a night, but the Pistons have a lot of guys they want to get minutes. Yeah. yeah. So you would basically just play Isaiah Stewart over Sadiq Bay, and that would be your main swap for this lineup. Yeah, and I think it serves two yeah. purposes, Amari. One, it gets stu- it serves more than two. It gets Stu at the four. It gets that front court pairing that I want to see, and I think it moves Sadiq Bay to the ultimate role he's going to play with this team, much like Killian, which is coming off the bench. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I think that you know, after the day, this roster, this roster is just not built to su- succeed when it comes down to it, right? Like you don't have K, and no matter what you do. Somebody's not going to be in their perfect row. But I think for Killian long term, he has to show that he could drive under any circumstance because typically role players in the NBA don't get to dictate whether they start or come off the bench. They just accept the run that they're in because they're a role player. If Killian finds another level and he is not shooting like 47% overall, 39 from three, or he gets to the point to where it would just be absolutely foolish to bench him, I think that's another thing. But let's see if Killian gets to that level first. You know, I don't think this roster is, I don't think anybody on this team is good enough to have immunity from coming off the bench. And that includes Killian. You know, like this team has 13 wins. I just don't think, I think Killian's been good. He's been good for about 10, 11 weeks now. And it's, it's fantastic. It's great for him. It's great for the Pistons. But you have three healthy guards. Two of those guys are, are, are leading playmakers. When I have to come off the bench, Ivy's your fifth overall pick. Uh, you put him with the group that has the best spacing and the best vertical spacing with Duran, who he's had great chemistry with from the last week. Like that's really developed pretty rapidly. No, I just I just don't think it's a knock on Killian at all. I don't think the coaching staff is deep, like I know in a sense they're deprioritizing him, but I think it's more of a rock a roster circumstance problem than a we just want Killian to come off the bench problem. I think when you have a team that's bad, it's just natural that you you know toy with guys and figure out if you can get something that you don't have out of that lineup previously. I wonder if, I don't even think it's about the bench. I think people just don't like the lineup that's around him on the bench. And again, that like some of that has to do with injuries. I think if they left Burks on the bench, which then I don't know who you would start, but if you had Killian with Burks, Livers, say Stu and Bagley, I bet people would be fine with it. You know, but like Bagley's not not able to play right now and Burks have to start if Killian doesn't because they don't have another guard. Like nobody wants to see Corey Joseph start. So you can't put him in the starting lineup with Jaden Ivey. So I think that's where, and, and I do understand this. I don't want to like uh, de-emphasize the point of they want Killian to be in a position to be successful and they feel like if he doesn't have a lob threat, that doesn't put him in a situation where he can be as successful as he would otherwise. I still don't think it's that bad of a situation with Isaiah Livers, Kevin Knox, uh, Hami, and Isaiah Seward. I mean, really, him and Hami made some huge plays last night. That would they come in and early in the third quarter, Killian banged a three, and then Hami does what he does. You know, he got a steal and a layup and and one, I think, and it started the run that eventually the Pistons took the lead, even though they ended up losing it. So I, I just don't think that that lineup puts him in that bad of a situation where he can't still look like a solid NBA point guard. Yeah, I agree. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's year three for him. I know it took him a little bit longer to you know get to the points where he needed to get to. This has been a good season for him, but yeah, I, I just don't like buy into that. At the end of the day, you're a point guard. It's your job to organize and make things happen. And he has to show that he can do that. Like if he can't, you know, drive into his second unit, then there's no reason to think that he's going to be a starter long term. At the end of the day, I think good players figured it out. I think 
Killian Hayes has been fine. Like I think, you know, for him to come off the bench and score 16 and that and that next win was great. He looked comfortable. And then last night he had a team high seven assists, cut turnovers down. I think Ivy had like five assists, six turnovers. Like he's still serving that important playmaking role. And if you think he should have uh, fit finished the game, that's fine. But I think a lot of the problems that caused the Pistons to lose that game had nothing to do with their backcourt at all. Honestly, it was like other stuff that happened on the floor. So, um, you know, it's, it's been two games. Maybe in the week I feel differently about it. But right now, I think we're on the same page. I think we both feel like it's a fine situation. It's not like Killian. Uh, and probably won't impact his long-term growth if he continues to work and do the things he's been doing this season. We're going to take a short break right here, and then we're going to come back and we're going to start answering all of these mailbag questions that you guys have dropped in the comments. Thank you guys so much for your engagement. We know we got a bunch, so we're going to start getting to those. Keep putting them in there as we discuss things, but we're going to take a short break, and then Amari will bring us back with our first question. All right, we are back here with segment two, and we are going to dive into our first question. Yes, so first question. Uh, this is from Alfonso Lafort, and I, I wanted to start this off more on a, a little fun note. So he, he says he's he's going to Detroit from Chile next year, wants to know when's the best time to come see a Pistons game. That's tough because it's like cold when the Pistons play. So, <laughs> you know, like the best time to come to Detroit, you know, to me is like eight, like May through... You know, September, maybe October, if you have like a warmer fall. Uh, so, you know, you get some good summer weather, or, you know, some good fall weather or the good part of spring, not the part of spring that's like fake winter. Uh, but as far as the best time to see a Pistons game, I would say uh, either right at the start of the season or like maybe toward the end. Like for me, it's just like a weather thing. You're coming from Chile, like you're going to come here and probably anything under 50 degrees is going to be freezing cold. So, um, you know, if you can deal with the cold, then honestly, just come whenever, you know, uh, like everything will still be open. Uh, you know, if it's a good game, the atmosphere will be great. I don't think you could really go wrong. Uh, if you want to cut out like the really awful part of winter, I would say either as early in the season as possible or as late in the season as possible. Like that whole late November through early March stretch is going to be pretty bad weather-wise, more than likely. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the pictures from the photo shoot that Amari and I did in November, is that right? Wasn't it November? It was I November. Mean, <laughs> yeah, it was like 30, it was like in the mid-30s. Like, you could probably see how cold I am. Like, my face <laughs> is all glossy <laughs> looking and a little puffy. Like, I'm just, yeah, like, I was struggling that day. But it's all right. It's all right. We have to do it for the promo. Uh, Amari shivering a little bit, yeah. a, a tear rolling. It's, it's not because it was an emotional photo shoot. It was because it was freezing. And I remember whenever me and my wife, we came out last season, the first time, our first trip to Detroit, it, I mean, we got out of the airport and it just hit. And man, it was so cold. And it gets cold in Kansas, don't get me wrong, but it definitely hit different. Uh, we're coming in April and I'm hoping that it's a little bit warmer. But yeah, if you're coming next season, then, you know, hopefully the team is competing all year long. But I will say, like, it seems like the excitement at the beginning of the year is always really, really cool. And so I would say come out. Um, I've only been to Detroit a couple times. I'll tell you this, Alfonso, both trips have been incredible. The people are so nice. Like, everything has been awesome. I get super offended when people, you know, make their comments about the city and, and different things. Every city has parts of it that are dangerous or whatever, you know. But, like, I've had nothing but great experiences with the city of Detroit, the people of Detroit. It's been awesome. So you definitely need to make a, a trip out and visit, catch a game, and make sure you shout out Amari and I um, when you're there. So what, what we got next, Wes? All right, we're going to get into one we kind of talked about earlier. Uh, this is from Just Chance. He was wondering where the Stu and Duren lineup went and if we're going to see it again. 
So I don't know if this is Laz or not, but since his son's name is Chance, I'm going to assume, and, and I may be wrong, so shout out Laz and DBB and their podcast. I know there's a lot of stuff going on right now with Vox Media and, and SB Nation and all that, so I just wanted to shout those guys out because um, Laz is big time in everything he does in the Pistons content community. But what do you think, Amari? We talked a, a little bit about the Stu Duran lineup a little bit ago. It's actually a lot of the same rationale that goes into Killian Hayes and Jaden Ivey being separated. It's just... Um, the Marvin Bagley injury uh, leaves you with really only two healthy big men. And they do want to get a good look at Isaiah Stewart and Jalen Duran together. But uh, when they're your only two healthy centers on the roster, well, you also have Nerlens Noel, but I think it's clear at this point that Nerlens is the emergency guy. And if Duran's healthy, he's going to get those minutes uh, unless he's in foul trouble, uh, which hasn't happened too often, you know, because Duran's actually been improving at a very rapid pace. Uh, but anyway, I think when Marvin Bagley comes back, we'll see that that lineup come back. Uh, I think it's just uh, they don't want to start both of their young bigs. One gets into foul trouble, one gets worn down. And then just from a rotation standpoint, you're basically kind of hopping on one foot the rest of the game. So uh, they just feel more comfortable bringing one of them off of the bench. I also say when they decided to start during and like bring Isaiah off the bench, like, you know, like there's like an acknowledgement that Isaiah can thrive in that role, right? Like, he's a year three guy. Uh, you know, he could come in with any unit and do what he does, kind of like with Killian. So, you know, those guys, I just think the consistency that, that they bring in that in, in those units uh, is something that could theoretically help the Pistons stay afloat. Now, it's been two games. That happened one game, didn't happen the other game, so we'll see. But uh, I think it's just more of a reflection of their lack of depth uh, at, at the big spots. And once Marv comes back, we'll probably see them start to play them uh, together more. Well, hopefully it speaks to the versatility that Stewart is going to have long term in terms of being able to come in, play the four, whether he starts at the four, if he eventually becomes like the third big on a team, but he can come in, he can play at the four, he can play at the five, he could start at the four, like hopefully that versatility is there. I also want to ask about Stu in general, Amari, because I do think we've been able to see with him playing more minutes at the five that he needed to make this transition to the four. It was important for him, especially offensively, because at the end of the day, as much as I love Stu, as much as everybody loves Stu, and rightfully so, we've seen him not be as effective catching the the dump-offs from the dunker spot, pick-and-roll situations. Like, he, his hands aren't always there. He doesn't have that super explosiveness. I know he can get up and finish him at times, but, like, I just think he's definitely going to make more of an impact playing on the perimeter as, as a four-man, and he can do it as a five-man as well. But I think this has shown why it was so important for him to develop that perimeter game. Uh, I think there is there's been a little bit of a misconception about like Isaiah Stewart's game and what he's good at on offense, where uh, yeah, like he's like this big, strong dude, and you know, you'd think he would be really good at finishing in the paint, but he's not. He's actually one of the worst players in the, in the NBA at finishing in the paint, and that's just because he doesn't really have vertical pop, and that's just like he's kind of just standing amongst trees down there. Like that's just not. Like, that's not putting him in a position to succeed for him to take most of his shots in the paint. Uh, he's an above-average mid-range shooter. He's been about average as a three-point shooter for bigs this season. And even just being average at shooting threes just makes that an infinitely better uh, shot for him than a shot in the paint. Like, if he gets a defensive rebound and a quick tip in, that's one thing. You don't necessarily want him picking and rolling into the paint. Like, that's not that's just not his game. Uh, he's a lot better on the perimeter. Defensively, he can hold his own against bigger wings, even switch on the guards here and there. Uh, his game's a lot more suited for that. And then you just see Duran, who is nothing but vertical pop, and he can run the floor and he gets to chase on blocks and just does all the traditional big man things. Uh, you want him down there, and you don't want him and Isaiah Stewart competing for space. So it's I think uh, Duran being on this roster and seeing what he does 
uh, definitely makes it more clear that, yeah, Isaiah at the Ford long term probably is a better fit for him. And if he has to play the five, cool, but you'd want him to be able to do both. I feel like him and Hami are the complete opposites. Like Stu looks like, the you know, he's this strong physical guy, like you're saying, that looks like he should play in the paint, but really he needs to go play on the perimeter and that game's going to develop. And then Hami is what, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, looks like he should be playing on the perimeter as a, a guard, but really he needs to be playing as a forward that's like dunker spot. I think you could pick and roll with him, offensive rebound, slashing transition. It's almost like their body types tell you one thing, but their actual physical abilities and skill sets tell you they should play the complete opposite way. And I, I just, I know we've talked about Hami. I, I wanted to bring him up just in case nobody asked a question about him because he's been playing really well. And like, I hope someone has a receipt about me. I loved Hami when Troy Weaver traded for him and I left Hami for dead this offseason. I put him out of the lineup, out of the rotation. I was all in on the Isaiah Livers hype train and I wasn't worried about him getting minutes and like he has proven me wrong for forgetting about him. Yes, it would be great if he shot it better, but again, he is a guy I want to return to this team next next year, Amari. Even if he's not in the, the top 10, he is a guy that in regular seasons, it happened last night. He brought energy that helped that team get back in the game even though they didn't win and I think that's going to be important for a team the next few years who's literally trying to win every single night to make their way into the playoffs. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, and shout out to Hobby too, because he's, I think he's really like better than 70% from the, uh, from the floor in the month of January. And uh, yeah, like he is essentially an undersized, uh, like power forward, which is pretty unique in today's NBA, but he's really attacked that real, really well. So uh, yeah, all good. I think we could probably get to the next question. Yeah, hold, real quick. Let me ask you, yeah. when's the last yeah. time Hami shot a three, Omari? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a really good question because I know he's like, I'm just cutting him entirely out of his diet this season. Uh, I'm just going to throw out a random date. Uh, December 26th. Oh, you went back. To- January 5th was the last time Hami. Yeah. So he's only shot three three-pointers in the month of January and he's two of three. But he hasn't shot one in one like 11, 10 or 11 games, he hasn't shot a three-point. So my point is, he has recognized who he is as a player, has cut those out of his game, has found a way to make an impact as he scored in double figures in like eight of those 10 games, 11 games, since he hasn't been taking threes. The only thing I wish he would cut out a little bit is his turnovers, but not every player is perfect. So you're right. We need to keep getting to the questions, but I wanted to make that point because I I did want to give Hami some more love because I thought it was deserved. Well, on that topic, I'm gonna I'm making an executive decision here. Bring up one that just got put in. It's what would be a a fair contract to bring Hami back on next year? Great question, Marty. I, I mean, so like I wouldn't go crazy as much as I just went through this whole Hami spiel. I would really like a contract similar to the one he just got. What was the one he's coming off of? Two for ten with a club option or something like that. Something like, like that, yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying like $10 million a year. I'm saying like five, $6 million a year. If you have to give him a player, maybe you can get him for two years, player option, something like that, where he thinks he can bet on himself, get back in the market when the CBA and the cap starts to spike here in a few years. I'm not saying something crazy because I don't think he needs to be one of your 10 best players. And I do think the wing forward position needs an overhaul this offseason. I just think he's a guy you want to keep in your organization. So, Two, three-year contract, give him a player option, four, five, six million dollars, something like that. Yeah, I would probably hover around the five billion mark. Like, I think he's been really good for this team and he's really capitalized on his role and uh, probably changed some opinions up as well. I think along with that, like, kind of what he brings you, I think is a luxury in a sense, but the team's still, like, deficient in other areas. So I imagine having you on the team, like, 
like a Milwaukee or like, you know, a team that's got a lot of that stuff fixed that like he probably is a rotation guy every single game. When he comes in, he's going to play really hard, make energy plays, maybe give you that spark you need. And, you know, I think that there's a road for that type of player in the NBA. Uh, I just think in the order of operations, it's probably, you know, a little bit lower and especially for a Pistons team that, uh, you know, again, it's like the second worst team in the NBA. So that's probably where I would value him. Um, like I like Tommy. Like he's always great to, to talk to. Like, like he's he's been great to us. He's, he's fun to watch. Um, and I think for what he gives you, that's probably kind of where I fall on that. And you know, if he became like a really strong defender or you know something along the lines of that, it would go up. But I think just as a pure energy guy, that's probably where his values at. And next up is from Alex. He's wondering who is the most likely to be traded at the deadline. And we were kind of talking about the lineup change earlier. It does maybe showcasing Alec Burks coming to play with that. I actually think it's the opposite, Amari, because I thought one reason Burks, you know, value may be super high is you see him coming off the bench in the role that he would probably be on a team that would want to trade for him. Do you agree with that or disagree? No, I agree. I think whether he starts to come off the bench, I think teams are generally aware of what he's been doing. And, um, you know, I think along with that, like because he's on that team option for $10 million, he has been so good and the Pistons don't have interest in winning next season. And you're probably not going to get a first-round pick for Alec Burks. It's like, what does it really do for us to get him for like two seconds or, you know, you deal him for like a... I'm, not, like, I'm just throwing a name out there, like you know, like a Cam Reddish or somebody who... That's, probably, a, that's a name that comes up a lot with Pistons fans. That comes up a lot. And like, yeah, maybe he's a slightly better defender, but he doesn't give you anything else. And it's like, it's not going to help you win, right? Uh, to the extent that Alec Burks can. So... I don't think he's being showcased. I think the Pistons are just trying to step out of this rut and, uh, you know, just play better basketball, honestly. And, uh, as far as most likely to be traded, like, I still think it's Bogey. I just think he has – he is the player that can fetch the most value back, and he is a player that has attracted the most attention. As a result, you know, I still don't think it's super likely that he gets traded unless the team gets really desperate, which could happen. Scale like, of 1 to 10. Right? Where, where are you at right now? Because – because I feel like I'm further up with him being traded than you are. Like just from our conversations, from recording the episodes, stuff like that. Where where are you at personally in, uh, on a scale of one to ten? Because I I feel like I'm at a seven or an eight, and my that vibe he with that he does get dealt. So ten being he's definitely getting traded by, by the deadline. One, he's definitely on the team this summer. I'm at a seven or eight. My vibe from you is you're more of like a four and a half. Yeah, I'm like a four. Like okay. I think like. You know, I think a lot of it just comes down to how desperate teams get. Um, you know, and I think the Pistons do like the idea of bringing him back. Like, he's been a veteran. He's been an adult in the locker room. Like, you flip him for assets. But now it's like, well, look how bad we've been with him. Like, you know, do you really want to, like, do you just want to allow the train and just go completely, you know, off the rails? and When you and don't have the, him? And into the abyss, right? So, um yeah, I'm like a four. Like, yeah, if you get a deal, you can't say no to. And I'm just going to plug my uh, trade story today where I came up with four fake trades that I think makes sense for Detroit standpoint. So subscribe to the Detroit Free Press. Uh, but I would say, yeah, I'm like a four. Like, you know, I think it's, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if it happens, but I also wouldn't put money on it happening. So I want to know this about Bogey. Do you think Bogey would come off the bench next year if he stays around? Because I am much much more interested in keeping Bogey if he's willing to accept that role. And not because I think he's bad as a starter, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a high chance that the Pistons get a top five pick. That's not news. And I think there's a high chance that that player will probably start. Let's even say they fall out of the top two. And it's, you know, they draft Brandon Miller from Alabama or Cam Whitmore from Villanova, even one of the Thompson twins. 
I would assume those guys are going to go right into the starting lineup. Like we've seen essentially every other lottery pick for the Pistons. Do you think Boyan, I don't even care if he's making $20 million coming off the bench. Do you think he's willing to accept that role? Because that's my question around keeping him for next season. Yeah, sorry. I'm not going to laugh for a minute. I see a question came in from Cheryl Brown. That is my mom's name, so I'm assuming that's my mom. So Let's go. Say, Shout out to Mari's mom. mom. I Hi, love mom. it. Yeah, my, my parents are very big podcast supporters, so uh, I'm I'm like 95% sure that that is the Cheryl Brown. That's my mom. So hi, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> I love um, it. As for Bogey, I think he'll come off the bench. Like, I think, you know, he kind of understood the, the deal when he came in here. And at the end of the day, if he's still playing the way he is now, like, they're going to have a hard time benching him even still, right? Like, you know, it's kind of hard to leave that on the bench. So a lot of that, I think, comes down to his level of play. But I think he'll accept that role. He's, you know, 33, 34. Uh, like, I don't think that that would be super controversial at all. Well, and the thing is, there's a way the draft lands where you need Bogey to start, right? Like, I think you can play Victor Wimanyama, Isaiah Stewart, and Jalen Duran together, but I don't know that you want to do that from day one. So that in that scenario, maybe you move Stu to the bench and there's still an open spot for Bogey in the starting lineup, or we, we don't even need to get into the Scoot Henderson stuff. That's a whole other segment that, that we're going to have to save for a later day. So there, there are guys you could draft in the Pistons range that still leave an open spot for Bogey to start. I'm of the mindset, Omari. I think he gets dealt because I think the Pistons end up getting a really nice deal for him. But if it's not like an unprotected, legit first-round pick, not like into the first round, and another asset, whether that's another future first or a young, like legit young prospect, someone that's somewhat decent, then I think I would just keep him as well. Keep him into the offseason, see what materializes there. If he starts the season on the team next year, so be it. We've, we've talked about the contract and how good it is. Keith Smith joined us last episode. If you guys haven't listened to that, go check it out. Keith Smith is incredible. He broke the whole thing down with us last episode, and he will join us before the offseason. We already locked that in. So um, I think he gets traded. Wh- what about Nerland's Noel? I know we talked about that last week a little bit also. I, at the very least, think Nerland gets is not on the Pistons post-trade deadline, whether it's a trade or they eventually go ahead and buy him out. Like I think, you know, especially when they got the fact that if they were to, you know, make a, some sort of move at the deadline and the roster's at 15 players, maybe I'd take more players in and then, you know, that roster pressure maybe forces Nerlens out. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, you know, he's not really played on this team. Uh, he doesn't really have a role on this team. There's been... Like, there's been interest around the league. There's been conversations. Like, I don't know if the team actually gives up anything of interest for him. But, like, most certainly after the, the trade deadline. And, you know, especially, like, you get Bagley back as well. Um, you know, you probably decide at that point, okay, like, you know, we don't need to keep using Nerlens as an emergency option, right? Like, there's 25 games left. Like, let's just, you know, sign up our ways. Yeah, since we've been talking trades, uh, DJ's wondering that, you know, in the past, Troy Weaver has operated kind of in stealth mode make some moves that no one saw coming. Do you guys expect any ex- surprises on uh, this deadline? No, I'm not I'm not really expecting any surprises this time. I think that, you know, we have a roster that, you know, is of choice doing. Uh, you know, these are our players he either drafted or signed or traded for. And I think that it would have to be, you know, I think the organization, I mean, like there is, I mean, you know, it's not it's not breaking news. There's, a, there's an awareness of, of this upcoming draft, right? So, you know, do you do anything that's really going to uh, be a measurable thing that, like, really makes you, like, a good team now? You can just wait till the offseason to do it, right? Like, what, you know, I think there's more of a, let's get past this season. Like, let's, you know, K got hurt. Whatever we were 
hoping for Tenzing going pins on, you know, Cade making that leap and he's not even playing. So a lot of that stuff just hasn't happened. You know, it could just be, you know, and I guess it could be a smaller surprise, right? Like maybe, you know, there's a team that wants, you know, a guy like Corey or Hami and, you know, second round pick or something. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just not necessarily banking on that. I think it'll be a quiet deadline. And, uh, you know, and if I'm surprised, then but there you go, right? You know, a surprise straight. I'm not expecting to be surprised. I'll put it that way. I will say this. I don't have a name, so please don't ask me for one. But I feel like there's somebody out there that Weaver's going to take a chance on. I feel like he's done it every year. Hami, Bagley, in the, even in the off seasons, you know, he brought in Josh Jackson. Like, I feel like he likes these reclamation projects. Some of them have panned out. Some of them haven't. I feel like there's somebody going to end up on the market for one of these teams where, you know, it's a second round pick. Maybe it's a fly. You know, he tried to go get Bull Bull, right? It, and we all love Rodney Magruder. And it, by all accounts, he's a, you know, a pro's pro, you know, by Mr. Blaha, you know, what he likes to call it. And he, you know, it didn't work out. But I just think there's something. Like, I feel like there's a name out there. None of us saw the Bull Bull thing coming. The Marvin Bagley, the third thing had been talked about for a while. I just think there's somebody out there that he's going to go and try and and see what happens. And so I, that's the one surprise I would see. I don't think it's trading anybody off this team. I just think there's a chance he goes and finds somebody from another team. Um, we're going to take a quick break right here. If you have any more questions, go ahead and get them in now because we are going into our final 20 minutes or so. And for the sake of the podcast, we do have to cut it off there. But we appreciate everything that you guys have asked so far. We got some of your questions in the queue. So if you have any, drop them now. We're going to go to this short break. And when we come back, Wes will lead us off with another question. All right. We're back with segment three. And we, first of all, we got a lot of questions. So thank you, everybody who tuned in. Like, we're just like overwhelmed here. So we may have to go a little bit more rapid fire and maybe go a little longer segment three. But all right, Wes, take us away. So this one we actually got from two people, a data-driven Pistons fan and Mark Faust. They're wondering if the Pistons ever applied or thought about applying for that injured player exception for Cade. That is a great question, and that is something that I, I didn't hear anything about them, you know, applying for that or going through that process. But, you know, I can't say for a fact that they didn't. So I'll actually follow up on that and see if there's anything there. I would say the thing about those exceptions is that they don't create roster spots. It's just, one, I think they're worth like half the salary of the player who got hurt, okay. right? So if Cade's making... 10 or 11, whatever he's making this season, you probably get like half that. And then second of all, it doesn't create a roster spot. So to use that, you have to part ways with somebody else. So uh, my guess is that they probably didn't go to that process. It was probably just because it's like, okay, it got hurt, but who do we cut to, uh, you know, sign somebody else? And at that point, I think it becomes a very different type of math, right? If you get an extra roster spot from it, that's one thing, but not getting that, you know, that probably lessens the incentive for the business to do it, given that they're not going to meaningfully compete for anything this year. Yeah, and I assume there's no like major drawbacks to utilizing that for any reason. But I wonder, like, this would have been a great question for Keith, and I may have to reach out on Twitter or, or email. But that's something we'll get in the outline for next episode, Wes, and then see if we can address with a little more detail. But I mean, I think Omari broke, broke it down there because I, I, I would have answered it incorrectly. I was assuming that a roster spot did open up with one of those, but it's just uh, salary cap space is all you really get. So not necessarily something the Pistons are really worried about. Um, at this point. So and there are- is a hardship exception that I think okay. does create a roster spot. And the rules for that are a little bit different. Yeah, this would be good for Keith because I am not, you know, like the salary cap has so many, you know, different aspects to it. There's stuff so I don't even think about it until you have to. And those rules are kind of one of those things. So uh definitely something we can follow up on a little bit. So, so just a, a good qu- question. 
a quick Google search of the hardship that has to do when it's multiple players though. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one. So multiple players are sick or injured for longer than two weeks. And so like that wouldn't really, I mean, even though they they have Cade and Bagley, like maybe at some point there was all those guys were, you know, injured together, but it may not have even been two weeks. So that probably didn't come into play with this scenario, but those are great questions. I love when we get into like that type of stuff. I love that our listeners are, are that into the, the, the roster construction of the team. So great stuff from data driven Pistons and Mark Faust. All right. So next one, uh, this is from Marty Sharp. We were talking about Nerlens a little bit earlier. He's wondering with, you know, all the injuries that they have in the front court, why aren't they playing Nerlens a little bit more? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just, you know, Nerlens and Durant have the same game. Uh, you can't play them together. Like, you can play Isaiah and uh, Durant together. Uh, you can't play uh, Durant and Nerlens together. And you can't play Nerlens and Isaiah together, but that's going to come at the expense of Durant. So I think it's just they have Jalen Durant. You know, they want to give him money opportunities, and he's, you know, improved at a pretty rapid pace. Uh, you know, you can play Nerlens, you know, to get maybe a little bit more defense and make the team more respectable now. But long term, with those are reps that Durant can get. I mean, yeah, he's a rookie big. Like, he's not going to be great on defense right after that. But those reps have him down the line. Uh, I think it's just it's a developmental season. Nerlens, you know, he was, you know, included in the trade with Alec Burks. And, like, he's had up just like a pro. He's been good when he's played. He's been good. But I just think that from an organizational standpoint, they just want, Jalen Duran uh, to have that time because he's the guy that's going to hopefully be one of the pieces that turns this thing around eventually. This is just me as an outsider, and I've said this multiple times. Omari doesn't tell me if he does know more than what he tells you guys. Omari does me. I don't have a you know a text message Shane with Omari telling me all the trades that are coming. It like I don't know anything. So this is just me as a fan, just like all of you from the outside. Like I just feel like there's probably an understanding between Nerlens and the organization that like there's not a whole lot of reason for Nerlens to play for this team. I don't know that Nerlens is necessarily interested in playing for this team. I'm not saying that in a bad way. Like I'm not trying to bad mouth Nerlens Noel at all. I'm saying like uh, he may not see the point. There's no long-term future with him and the Pistons. And for the Pistons organization, like Amari has outlined, there's no incentive for them to play him, especially over Duran, and only if they absolutely have to. Because the other thing is, even though they're playing small, if Nerlens is playing in the second unit, let's take last night, for example, Omari. If Nerlens plays in the second unit, that means one of Hami, Livers, or Knox doesn't get to play. So while yes, maybe the size of Nerlens and Stewart together in the second unit would have been better, that means Knox wouldn't have got to play or Livers wouldn't have got to play. And those guys that are guys you're going to prioritize because there's a chance, albeit maybe small, but there's a chance those guys are part of this future of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. You have a lot of mouths to feed. Livers is probably best as a four. I think I still honestly think this season is probably giving more uh, credence to the fact that Bay is probably better as a four than as a three. Uh, you know, you just have a lot of mouths to feed up there, and I just don't. You know, for me, I think this is just a pure acknowledgement of they're just not the future of this team. Uh, you know, like these guys are. We need to dedicate that time to them. All right. So uh, this one is from Aruna. Hopefully I pronounced that right. But he's wondering if they're able to financially keep all of these former first round draft picks by Troy Weaver. And if not, who might be the odd people out? The answer is no. Uh, No, absolutely not. Like you've got six first round picks and, um, you know, one of those guys, you know, probably on track to be a max guy. Um, You know, Ivy Duran, on track to make a lot of money. You know, I think Killian, Isaiah Bay. You know, at least showing that they could be good role players. So, you know, that's the percentage of the cap. That is, you know, and then you still want to do other moves too. 
you know, I think it's, it's just pretty rare for a team to be able to keep that many draft picks in a certain span of time unless some of those guys just flat out don't pan out. Like, you know, if you're the Knicks and you miss, if you don't resign however many uh, straight first round picks they had until they finally uh, see what to do with RJ Barrett this past offseason, that's one thing. But all these guys are at least NBA players, right? So I would estimate that. Yeah, eventually somebody probably gets squeezed out. Like, even if they initially get paid, but you have to trade them later on, eventually somebody gets squeezed out. Who are the odd people out, and does it change based on who gets drafted? Second, well, Bryce, first, I'll let you go before I go into the first half of the question. Yeah, so I just want to say, if, if they do, it's either a really, really good thing because they all panned out to as good as possible and they didn't have to bring in anything from the outside, like Cage, your number one, Ivy's your number two, Duran's your number three, Stu is a starting four man, Hayes and Bay, like our players six and seven off the bench, and they all reach like max potential. And all you had to do was re sign them. You can use their bird rights, you can go over the cap, et cetera, et cetera, and everything was great. I don't think that's going to happen. Or it was really bad because you didn't have to pay him very much money because they didn't come close to living up to expectations. I don't think either situation plays out. I think what Omari said is what we're going to see in terms of some of them, you know, Cade's going to end up being a max guy, Ivy Duran, and then some others, maybe even Ivy and Duran, I guess, end up being part of a trade that gets you somebody that's a bigger name, et cetera. So I, I think that's probably the scenario that plays out. I love this question. This is a really good question, by the way. Yeah, no, it, like that is a really good question because these are, I mean, the team's going to start having these conversations. Having these conversations now and this offseason because those 2020 picks are essentially eligible is when we're really going to see that kind of dial turned up on like, oh, okay, these guys are their own rookie deals. Like, it's time to start making some tough decisions on, like, financially what makes most sense for this rebuild, right? So uh, those conversations are really, I mean, this is the right time to start talking about it. Um, like, the odd people out, I think some of that does change based on who gets drafted, right? Like, if you um, end up with another wing, you know, then it's like, okay, we have Boogie, like, we have Bay, um, like, we have Livers, like, you know, that room starts to get crowded. You got another big, you have Duran, you have Isaiah Stewart, might have another big, you know, like there's some things to figure out. Like you draft Scoot, right? You just draft a Cade, Killian, and Ivy. And that's probably one of the more likely scenarios where you have four young ball handlers. And yes, you know, that's that's a lot of roster spots for guys who all have overlapping skill sets, right? And that's tough. You know, I think there, there will be uh, people out, but I think it's hard to say who that would be without knowing who the picks will be. So I think as the roster stands now, like I think all those players fit to various extents. I think after this upcoming draft, probably not. So it just largely depends on if they draft first, second, or third, <laughs> to be honest with you. I would say Hayes and Bay probably are the most likely if I had to like rank them. And again, I want to emphasize, I like Killian Hayes a lot. And I think he's a really good second unit point guard. And I probably have more questions around Sadiq Bay than any of these guys right now. I don't think Cade's going anywhere. I think the organization loves Isaiah Stewart. Now, if you draft Victor, that might change, you know, Stewart standing in the organization because now he's definitely coming off the bench unless Victor does play at the three. I think Ivy especially if it would happen anytime soon, only gets moved because you draft Scoot. You try to play those guys together. Scoot is a stud and it doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily working out. I think that's a scenario where maybe Ivy gets moved for a, you know, a really good player or something like that. But you're right. I, I still think, and I feel like, I know fans hate this. I hate saying it because I feel like we've said it every offseason for two offseasons. There's going to be so much learned this offseason with all the cap space, the next draft pick, Cade coming back from the injury. And so a lot of it's still a little bit in flux. But if, if I had to answer, I would say Hayes and Bay. And I would I would probably lean that way too, just because this this team is still in a 
you know, state of just needing star talent, right? And, you know, you're probably going to want to gamble for upside. Ivy has the upside, Durant has the upside. Uh, you know, Isaiah Stewart, like he is who he is, but I still think just from a pure defensively malleable big who get three standpoint, like he could be your Grant Williams and you need that. Uh, you know, I think Bay, what he's done so far is probably, you could probably find that in free agency, you know, and not have to overpay for it. And Killian as well, you know, I think if, you know, you have these all these guys who can handle the ball and you just need, uh, you know, a point guard who's played at the level Killian has been at, you could probably find that and not spend a lot of money. So, uh, yeah, like if, if you had that to rank, that's probably where you lean. But I think that's ultimately impacted by where that pick lies because I still think those are guys you should probably try to keep around if you can. Like, you know, maybe, you know, they're not going to be like those, like, absolute tier one guys that you need to like win, but you know, they're still pretty good NBA players and they still have upside in front of them. And yeah, to me, I think after this upcoming draft, we have a better idea for that hierarchy uh, kind of false. All right, Wes, we probably got time for two more. And then I have one that got sent to me directly that I want to finish off the episode with. So we'll do the two you have, and then we'll finish it off. I think, uh, Omar, you should read this one off though. <laughs> All right. It's Bagley, a long-term keeper from Cheryl Brown, my mom. Um, you know, the interesting thing about Marvin Bagley is that, like, at first he came in at the trade deadline last year. He gave his team the athleticism it needed. Uh, he fit pretty well. Uh, you know, when you when you are able to acquire Jalen Duran on draft night, you know, now you have him and Bagley in the same roster. You have some things that overlap. Uh, like, I'm not speaking for Troy in the front office when I say that, you know, maybe what Bagley was giving me beforehand changed not you have Duran, but just from a person who covers the team, and you can kind of see this straight up, right? Like, he has a little bit more of an awkward fit as a big that uh like he he does he doesn't shoot you know and he doesn't give you a lot of defense as well so you know you're giving some things up because Duran does kind of give you that athleticism element that you need so you know i don't i don't know if i necessarily like i think a lot of that comes out of how well he plays when he comes back but this hasn't been the season he needed and like long term i don't know if i'll put him in like that long term keeper category like especially since he's one of the contracts on the roster that like if you need to get a deal done, like he's kind of in that sweet spot, right? Well, first, Miss Brown, thank you for the question. You've raised a great young man. Omari <laughs> became a great, he's a great co-host and a great friend. And thank you for thank listening. You. And I do want to shout out my family. If they're still listening, my wife and the three kids, Rowan, Raleigh, and Royce were all watching. I doubt they're all watching because they're eight, six, and three, and they don't, <laughs> they don't sit for an hour, but shout out to them. I, Mrs. Brown, I do not think he's going to end up on the team long-term. I think he gets moved as like, not a salary filler because he is a valuable player, but he has a $12 million contract that I do think ends up being part of another trade. And I don't think you can play Bagley and Duran together at all. No, and no. Also, some of it is that, you know, somebody mentioned this in the comments that Duran, like I'm trying to check, read the YouTube comments a little bit more, I'm going back and forth, but um, that Duran, like I don't think people necessarily expected him to be a pretty good starter this early into his career either. He turned 19 two months ago, so um, you know, it's a lot of things that have happened that you can't really predict when you sign Marvin Bagley. And you know, I think what was previously an environment he could thrive in is now, you know, you've got this young athletic big man who's clearly the future. <laughs> so, you know, something's got, got to give long term, right? So I'll be curious to see how that how that shakes out. But he doesn't strike me as somebody that they could keep long term, uh, just looking at the priorities of the roster as a whole. Last one from the chat. And this is actually one we were thinking about talking about anyway. So, uh, curious nice. to get the thoughts on the team's body language and you know the visible frustration just about 
most of the guys and also the usual suspects. He says Hami, Boyan, and, and Ivy. This this goes back to the Rockets thing from last night that I did want to mention. And that's what I think made that loss even worse was you could see how dysfunctional the Rockets were. Like you could hear the, on the broadcast for whatever reason last and I don't always <laughs> I don't always listen to the audio, but last night you could hear dudes yelling at each other. Like when Livers poster dunked Bruno, I think it was Garrison Matthews was like uh, help Bruno, help Bruno's like, bro, you just left him out to dry to get posterized by Isaiah Livers. Um, JSJ got a block and you heard, you know, his trash talk, but you could just hear dudes yelling at each other and how dysfunctional that was. I do want to talk about Jaden Ivey specifically. And I don't think this is an overall a bad thing, Omari. I don't think players who wear their emotions on their sleeve is a bad thing. I love emotional players, the game, all sports, all things in life. Like this podcast brings out emotion in me. Like I'm sure my heart rate is way higher over the last hour than it was, you know, two hours ago, or it'll be later today, but you have to be able to control that a little bit. And with Jay Nivey, I feel like when it's going well, he's a lot of fun to watch, but when it's going bad, Omari, like, the body language stuff is really, really bad. And it obviously rubs some of his teammates the wrong way. I'm not saying it's like, oh my gosh, you have to trade him. I don't want to like make it too big of a deal. I think it'll actually be better when Kate is around and you have that leader. But I do think it is just something to mention and something to monitor. Yeah, I agree. I think it stands out more now because we hadn't seen a lot of that, you know, up until this season. So you add a player who does wear his muscles on the sleeves a little bit more. And it sort of contrasts with, I think, what people have gotten used to watching. Um, you know, so I think that's part of it. And, uh, of course, we have one guy who acts out a little bit more. Other guys are going to react, and then it's like a chain reaction, right? Uh, but we just haven't seen that as much. So, like, that, that has to kind of do this season. Uh, you know, I would say one, uh, yeah, you know, I do think they're frustrated, you know, because they've been losing. So, uh, you know, I think that's just... The natural consequence of using is that guys are going to get frustrated. Uh, it was funny sitting, you know, like our media seems like kind of behind, um, you know, like the rim at the LCA. And uh, like we were hearing a lot. Like it was just <laughs> like, and it was like loud. And it was just kind of funny how just much more emotive the Rockets were as a team, even compared to the Pistons, like the Rockets were like a lot more. And, you know, like there was like the Eric, the Eric Gordon quote from like a few weeks ago, like, we're not a better team, right? And there's some stuff going on there that you haven't seen in Detroit. So uh, the bottom line, like this year three of losing, like, you know, not guys are getting frustrated. Like, I think that is, you know, just sort of natural. Um, you know, I don't think I've seen anything that makes me, like, if I were a fan, like, I would worry, right? Like, I think I've just seen, like, the normal amount of frustration when you're losing. Like, I think if guys were, like, doing, like, a meg around the middle of the court when you're doing all this, that's, that's probably a worse sign than guys getting getting mad at each other, right? So, uh, yeah, like, you know, like, losing wears thin. Uh, you know, Ivy wears on the sleeve. It is what it is. Like, I don't necessarily see it as, like, a sign of dysfunction, but guys are frustrated. Guys are frustrated this year three, and I think that's why we're seeing some lineup changes and things like that because it is starting to wear thin uh, much more than maybe at this point last season or the year before when you were earlier into this process. Yeah, the only thing I will say, and I text Wes about this a few games ago whenever I actually had a tweet about it is, I just, I, I would rather not see the passive aggressive stuff. I don't like like the palms up, the hand, you know, the body. Like if you want to call Jaden Ivey out for not playing hard, then get in his face and, and yet, you know, talk to him about it or, you know, for Boyan not helping, whoever it is. Like, I just would rather him see that, like vocally express your frustration and it doesn't have to be on the court. And maybe it's being done in the locker room. There's, there's so much of this stuff that, 
We as fans have no idea what's going on. You see a little bit more of it, but even as a beat writer, you don't have complete access to it. So there's a whole lot of conversations in coaches' offices, in locker rooms, at practices that we don't really even see. So I, I do have to ask, because it happened last night, did you see LeBron's response? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so I want to be clear, because I'm going to be labeled a LeBron hater. But that it was an egregious, egregious missed call. It was a thousand percent a foul. He a thousand percent should have been upset. It was a little much laying down in the middle of the lane for 30 seconds as your team's getting prepared for overtime. That's all I want to say. And that's, the you know, and I think you look across the league and, you know, again, like, you know, it stands out here because the Pistons haven't been doing it, but they're like, Across the league, a lot of guys are very, and LeBron's done that over the years. Like, that was probably a more extreme example, but that's something he's done over the years. And he's not the only one. Like, a lot of superstars are very, you know, dramatic when it comes to that stuff. Luca? So, like, I love like, Luca Doncic. Oh, come on. Like, Trey, Luca does it a lot, man. And then Pat Bev brings out the camera. And <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. All right, I, I got to get to this one. So, Sean Corp, editor over at DBB. He messaged me. He said his home internet went out, so he had to leave. But he had this question. What's the best part of working with Wes after 50 Pistons Pulse episodes and many more before? So I just want to – and he knew you wouldn't put this up, Wes. So everybody, make sure you check Wes's reaction out right now. If you aren't watching this on YouTube, just go – this is about a, a little over an hour into the episode, so go check out. Wes has been incredible. I won't get into the whole backstory. Um, he reached out. Whenever I lost my original co-host at Motor City Hoops, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, things progressed. We've become great friends. We've, we've been able to meet in person. Him and Omari now have a friendship. Uh, he's incredible. You guys don't give him enough credit. We don't give him enough credit and shout outs. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He has his own great takes and thoughts around this Pistons team. But the Pistons Pulse... The Pistons pulse would not be what it is without Wes doing the outline. Like he saves Omari and I so much time. We essentially show up and talk Pistons. Wes does everything else behind the scenes. And I just want to say 50 episodes. This has been even better than what I could have imagined. Like I was so excited when Omari actually responded to my request, you know, 12 months ago, the fact that it's turned into what it is that we're live on YouTube right now, recording with the backing of Detroit free press with a Pistons beat writer. Um, I know Wes and I talk about this all the time. It's extremely surreal for us. Um, but even more than just the podcast, the friendship with Wes, the friendship with Amari, I, I can't emphasize it enough. Like it's it's been an incredible ride, and I can't wait for fifty more episodes. Yeah, I mean, we always shout out Wes at the end of our podcast, and you know, you guys, you know, hear his voice pretty frequently. Uh, but Wes is the answer for the pod. Like he keeps us alive, he keeps us organized. Uh, I don't have a podcasting background. Like all this this past year, this like this has all been due for me. And, uh, to be able to lean on the West, I mean, you know, Bryce, like these guys are pros, they know what they're doing. Like it's been, you know, I feel like it's been really easy for me to just kind of slide in and, uh, you know, just have a good podcasting environment, right? You know, because these guys are professionals and like it's going extremely well. Uh, I think from, you know, day one, it's been cool. seeing a lot of long-time listeners in here as well. Uh, 50 episodes, it's weird. It feels like this is like the 120th episode. Like it's like, it's like 50, like I feel like we've been like 100 of these already. Um, you know, like such a, an awesome milestone and uh this was a, a lot of fun like we have more stuff more announcements coming up that you we are extremely excited for so uh yes yes i think it's very fitting to end this with some uh west love so hey we appreciate you man thank you for everything you've done and here's 50 more thank you guys really appreciate it
It's a blast. Amari alluded to it. We do got some exciting news. We can't let you know, but here, just keep your eyes and ears open over the next couple weeks. We got some pretty cool stuff coming up. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for everybody that tuned in. If watching on YouTube, if you're listening to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen, give it a rating review. We appreciate it. We'll shout you out on the next episode. Amari, take it away, my guy. All right, awesome, awesome. Uh, big thanks to our editor, Robin Chan, who really did a lot to help us organize last week. So thank you, Robin. Uh, shout out to our executive producer, Ejnet Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkley Crawford. Also, one last shout out to Wes Davenport. We'll talk to you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>